Dolly Parton there with 9 to 5 from the film of the same name. Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm fine. And you? I'm pretty good, thanks. And good. Uh, 9 to 5 is a very underrated comedy, so good choice to start us off. Yes, I thought it was time for a bit of Dolly on the show. Shall we, uh, shall we talk some movies? I think we better, since yes. I'm here. Uh, no, uh, no movies on at the Annick Playhouse this week, so we'll, uh, skip on to the Maltings in Berwick, because they've got quite a few on. So, tomorrow afternoon at 2.30, it's going to be The Adventures of Tintin. Which, I uh, know, I think we're both fans of. I mean, um, yeah. you're a big fan of Jamie Bell. Yeah. I think it's better to see it in 2D, and the story is ultimately a little stodgy, but the set pieces remind you just how good Spielberg was when he made Indiana Jones. Sounds good. On to Half Price Monday, 8 o'clock, it's going to be Goon. Um, which is the Sean William Scott film, which isn't quite as bad as you think it would be. Um, there's been news stories this week that they're going to get the American Pie cast back together for a fourth film, which fills me with dread. So, yeah, it's okay, just don't expect a masterpiece. On to Tuesday, The Iron Lady. Uh, deeply flawed in so many ways. Um, I think Meryl Streep is odds-on favourite to win Best Actress at the Oscars this weekend. It is this weekend, isn't it? It is. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's a good performance, albeit a, um, a showy performance in the way that Meryl Streep's performances often are showy, set around a film which is just a bit of a misjudged melange, really. It's not a terrible film, it's just, you, know, you could have done so much better with the material. So that's one o'clock and eight o'clock on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday is the Berwick Film Society evening, and this one is called Wasteland. Yeah, that's an interesting documentary. I don't know much about it, but, um, if I've got my facts right, and bear in mind I've made this mistake before, I think Wasteland is a documentary about people making art out of stuff that goes into landfill. That's right, yes. Ah, yes. Artist Vic Muniz, uh, journeys from his home base in Brooklyn to his native Brazil and the world's largest um, garbage dump, Jardim Gramacho. Right. Because remember we had that instance of... Uh, <laughs> I remember it. Was it yes. on the Christmas special? It's the only one you've ever got wrong. Yes, well, you had yeah. to let me off once. It's encyclopedic, considering I get them wrong about every two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you do yourself a disservice, yes. Richard. You know. And then, then on Thursday, it's Warhorse. Which we'll talk about, because it's back in the top ten. Um, oh, yes, so it is, yes. So, the Mortings in Berwick, 01289... Three three zero nine nine nine. So, are you having an Oscar party tomorrow? Uh, no, to be honest, I don't tend to take much notice of the Oscars. Not in any sort of contemptuous way. I just don't think that they're as important as they were That's about ten years ago. So, in the unlikely event there's a surprise, we will tell you all about it next week. Well, yeah. Well, bear in mind, I might not be here next week. That's true. Two weeks time. Yeah, two, we will. We will do a full summary in two weeks' time. Um, but we'll talk about next week when we come to it. Right. So, on to the top ten. Uh, that number ten is Man on a Ledge. Which has surprisingly come back into the top ten. I mean, the first five or ten minutes, it's okay, but then it has literally nowhere to go. I mean, I think that Jamie Bell is the best thing in it, but it is further proof that Sam Worthington can't act, basically, so just avoid it. Ah, possibly uh, one not to look forward to is Jack and Jill at number nine. It is hideous. I mean, people often go soft on Adam Sandler these days because of Punch Drunk Love, which I think is slightly overrated, both in terms of the performances and the director, Paul Thomas Anderson. The biggest problem with that I have for me is that why would Al Pacino do this? I mean, it's Al Pacino playing him an exaggerated version of himself, and he's clearly only doing it for the money. Yeah. But just, you're at the point in your career when you can be selective, Al, and... 
if that's your idea of being selective, you need to get your head examined. Uh, number eight, Warhorse. Which is back in the top ten, probably because of the Oscars happening this weekend. I don't think it's first-rate Spielberg, but it has clearly hit its target audience, because it was number one for yonks and yonks before it dropped out. Um, I don't think it's going to win big in many of its categories, um, but if you want an old-style tearjerker, then it will suffice very nicely. Uh, number seven, The Descendants. Which I really like. It's not Alexander Payne's finest or funniest work. I do think that George Clooney will win the Oscar for Best Actor. It is a lot gentler than either Sideways or About Schmidt, and About Schmidt still has a very strong place in my heart because of Jack Nicholson's brilliant performance. But this will... It's one of those slow-burning films that when you're watching it, you don't think it's remarkable. But as it, you think about it for a couple of hours afterwards, it will sort of creep up on you and its appeal will become more clear. Journey to the Mysterious Island which is a 3D child-friendly pot boiler. It's not as good as the first film, largely because Brendan Fraser is a lot more charismatic and likeable than Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who, there's, there was a news story this week that he's been cast in, uh, to play Hercules in Brett Ratner's new film. <sighs> Blimey. Um, it's Michael Caine as well clearly doing it for the money in the same way that, you know, when he opened the script for Jaws 4 and the first location was the Bahamas, he said yes straight away. So... Very, very, very young children will probably enjoy it, but they won't remember anything about it when it's over. On to number five now, and Chronicle. Which is a pleasant surprise. I mean, I'm still not sure about the found footage motif, which is getting very thin. But it is a very interesting take on superhero origin stories, which subverts the conventions of things like Spider-Man and Superman to some extent. I think that Max Landis, who is who, the son of John Landis, who had a hand in the script, is clearly a very smart writer. And I think we're going to see a lot more from him in the future. Number four is The Vow. Which is no, a bit underwhelming, to be honest. I mean, Rachel McAdams is quite good. I mean, I like her in The Time Traveller's Wife, even though that's a very flawed film. But the film is essentially 50 First Dates with more tears. So if you want an incredibly soppy date movie, then fine. But otherwise, go and watch a Lassa Halstrom film. They're much so better. Just reading the plot here, a newlywed couple recovers from a car accident that puts the wife in a coma, waking up with severe memory loss, her husband endeavours to win her heart again. Haven't I read that before in another film? Well, the other or thing. Twenty. That, well, the other thing it reminds me of, of course, is while you were sleeping. Yes, indeed. Which, if, no, I mean, dangerous to compare anything to while we were sleeping because that's that's a very good Sandra Bullock film. Right, Inglorious 3D, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace Returns. Yeah. God help us. Um, you got my rant of sorts last week, so I'm not going to just go through that. I mean, it is hideously pointless, and if you go and see it, shame on you. Just, to, no. Save your money and watch the Red Letter Media Review on YouTube instead. Now, that's an hour and 40 minutes long, and it basically takes the whole film apart and says just how utterly steaming, what an utterly steaming pile of unrepeatableness it is. Um, just, why would anyone want to go and see it? I just don't know. One to go and see, though. Number two is The Muppets. Absolutely. It's really great to have them back in cinemas. I mean, like I say, there have been a couple of people who have... It's not so much a backlash, but expressed concern. I mean, Frank Oz famously wasn't involved because he said the script was a bit disrespectful. He, he particularly took offence to... Uh, well, not offence, but just objected to the sequence of Fozzie Bear walking on whoopee cushions because he said that the original Muppets wouldn't have done such a cheap gag. But as far as I'm concerned, no, it's going to win the Oscar for Best Song, and it is a proper family film with great characters and real affection for the for the process of creating them. Yeah, I was watching the video of the song. Oh, it's brilliant. Mm. Absolutely. Very, very clever. Absolutely. Well, they've got um, the people who wrote Flight of the Concords in writing that, yeah. so it's but who love the Muppets from the early days, yeah. so they, they clearly know what they're saying. And very clever special effects. 
Yeah. I thought. And old style, old, it still felt and, you know, people yeah. up uh, with sock puppets and so forth, yeah. so it feels tactile. Right, and uh, number one, The Woman in Black. Yeah, I wrote a piece for um, a website called whatculture.com about the resurgence of old-fashioned ghost stories in which I specifically referred to The Woman in Black. Um, and I'm really glad it's taking money. I'm really glad that Hammer is here to stay. Apparently their next project is going to be a film about Jack the Ripper, mm. told in a sort of Silence of the Lambs style where he is in prison, where in an alternate universe he's been imprisoned in London jail and he has to help them track down another serial killer so it's essentially Jack the Ripper meets Silence of the Lambs I think it's a good old-fashioned ghost story Daniel Radcliffe is occasionally a little out of his depth because he is a bit too young for the role but on the whole I think the film is pretty convincing so if it was you or me starring in it would it be at number one as it oh I see what you mean um well I'm about the same age as Radcliffe so I'd say no on that front and I'm not going to. I'm not going to put my foot in it by no. saying either way. No, I'm just thinking. I mean, is it is it the film or is it Daniel Radcliffe that people are rushing to see? Well, I think that the, the teen audience, which would explain a lot of its box office success, are going to see Radcliffe. And I don't think he's awful. I don't think it's like you know some of the earlier Potter films where Rupert Grint is clearly reading his lines off auto cue. But no, it's just that I think he is. It's too young by a couple of years. And no, it's someone put in a very harsh review. Uh, which basically said it was like a school play in which someone had drawn the stubble on him. But I think yeah. that's being a bit too hard. I think that the main reason people are going to see it, well, it's either because of Radcliffe or if you're a horror fan, it's because of the Hammer brand. Right. So, um, <clears throat> I was stuck at the railway station one night this week. I can't remember which because the trains have been such a mess. Mm. And uh, so I went and bought myself a copy of Esquire, a respectable gentleman's magazine. Yes. Other magazines are available, of course. Yes. And I got an interview with Daniel Radcliffe, which was all good stuff, you know, and he's, um, you know, trying to show he's just a average la la uh, bloke around the block you know, yes seems to be his style and then they had him doing these fashion shoots and they had the price list it was like a thousand pounds for the jacket 750 pounds for the shirt yeah, yeah. just every normal person wears really exactly i mean he has the, some of the publicity around the woman in black has been odd because there have been stories coming out about him saying you know oh i was an alcoholic and oh i slept with loads of extras on the potter film so you know which kind of image is he going for? <laughs> I haven't read that. Article. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But either way, it's good to see him doing something more grown up, even if he doesn't entirely get it right. Right. Cult film next, after Ellie Goulding. Oh, radio. Oh, lovely song, that one. Ellie Goulding and your song. Oh, well, I suppose we better get on with it. I hadn't realised it was only 91 minutes long. It just felt like 151 minutes long. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll come to Monty your... Monty Python and the Holy Crown. Yeah, we'll come to your opinion once I've set it up. Um, 1975 comedy considered by many, but not necessarily all, to be the greatest comedy of all time. It's officially the second Monty Python film. Um, you may remember the first one was an anthology film called And Now for Something Completely Different yeah. from 1971, where basically they, it, it was funded, bizarrely enough, by the UK executive of Playboy. <laughs> and um, basically he said, no, I like the Pythons, I want to give you the money to break you into America, so let's basically redo all your sketches with slightly better production values and make them into a feature-length film. And... Um, the project failed, basically, because the, um, the Americans only got to see Python after the fourth series when, you no know, PBS bought the rights to circulating it on late-night TV. The Pythons were famously not happy with the film. I mean, they wanted to break out of the boundaries of television, and they were also incredibly unhappy with um, the, uh, the director, Ian McNaughton, who had previously produced and worked with Spike Milligan on the early, ones, yeah. early versions of the Q series, and he thought, no... 
for the ambitions that they had, he was just being too straight down the line, too BBC for what they wanted to do anymore. So this film is directed by Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam jointly. Uh, and uh, so this is the, f the first sort of joint project they did, whereas the later Python films, Life of Brian and Meaning of Life, would be helmed by Terry Jones outright. Although there is a section at the beginning of The Meaning of Life called The Crimson Permanent Assurance, which is directed solely by Gilliam and is regarded by sort of cult fans as a prequel to his film Brazil, which came out two years later. Um, filmed on a budget of £229,000, which, you know, is very, very cheap, and uh, most of that funding came from rock groups. It was a <laughs> consortium founded by Tony Stratton-Smith, who was uh, an executive at Charisma Records, where the Pythons had made all their spoken word albums. And he got money from, amongst others, Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, and Led Zeppelin. And it's interesting when you look back at the history of Python, how financially at any rate their their history is tied up so much with musical groups i mean you, there's the famous story about george harrison stumping up the money to make life of brian yeah. after emi got cold feet after they finally read the script um but also i mean if you look at the involvement of neil innes who of course cut his teeth in the bonzo dog doodah band in that sort of absurdist surreal tradition yeah. no the two are very much bound up together and of course eric idol's songs have kind of taken over python with Indeed, spamalot yes um it was a huge commercial success in europe and north america on a, on a budget like i say of two hundred and twenty nine thousand and it took over 80 million. So Incredible. we're talking, yeah. no, before Halloween, three years later, this was probably one of the most successful independent films ever made. But it's deserving of cult status, not just for that notability, but because it's perhaps the most influential and most quotable comedy film prior to This Is Spinal Tap. And no, certainly the way that all the different cliches, like the banging of coconuts and so forth, have, per have percolated into popular culture. Um, so the, the plot is, it's... It's superficially a spoof of the Arthurian legends, in the sense that after a series of jokey titles featuring comments about Swedish moose and llamas, um, we find ourselves in the year 93 squared AD, and uh, King Arthur, played by Graham Chapman, is roaming England with his trusty servant Patsy, but because they haven't got a horse, they're banging coconuts together, which was a budgetary decision as much as a creative <laughs> one, and they are looking for knights to join them at their court at Camelot, so they recruit, amongst others, Sir Lancelot the Brave, played by John Cleese, Sir Galahad the Pure, played by Michael Palin, and Sir Robin, the not-quite-so-brave as Sir Lancelot, played by Eric Idle. After deciding not to go to Camelot after all, because it is a silly place, um, they receive instruction from God, who, no, in typical Python style, is a Gilliam animation of a cut-out of W.G. Grace, the former <laughs> England cricket captain, who basically says, I want you to go on a quest for, a holy, for the Holy Grail, and he goes, and Sir Arthur says, good idea, Lord. Of course it's a good idea! And uh, along, so they go off on this quest, and along their way they encounter various characters, such as the knights who say, meh! Um, the owners of Swamp Castle, who uh, uh, no, want huge tracts of land, uh, a group of young virgins at Castle Anthrax, one of whom is played by Carol Cleveland, and the sarcastic French knights who taunt them along their way. When I said we were going to do this, um, you made very clear that you were disappointed by it when you first saw it. And I was taken by surprise, because in all honesty, you were the first person I've met who... Not, no, I've met people who think it's overrated, but you're the first person I've met who genuinely dislikes it. And no, it's completely natural that our tastes should vary, and yeah. cult films are by their nature devices. So in the same way as I let you pitch Logan's run, I'm going to give you this moment to sort of argue your case, because you would have seen the series first time round. Yeah, and the series is absolutely brilliant. You know, I think it's... Uh even today, it's a classic piece of television, mm -hmm. um, but of its time, it was, um, you know, I guess it was the, um, that was the week that was of the 70s. It, it was groundbreaking. Um, it's um, challenged all of the uh, preconceptions of television, mm -hmm. and I thought it was brilliant, fantastically well done. 
and it had the advantage of being sharp and to the point and uh, taking the audience along very, very quickly on a brilliant uh, off-the-wall comedy. Um, and had the film been about as long as your description of it, I'd have probably have enjoyed it because it did have some quite funny bits in it. But it was just too long and, for me, too contrived. And I just found the whole thing desperately boring. How, was, how did you feel it was contrived? I just... It just... For me, just they, they took... It, it It could have been over quite short. So I said an hour too long, probably in an hour. It just, you know, for me, it, they, they strung out the material. Okay, that's that's interesting. I mean, where do you stand on the later Python films? Because I will agree that Life of Brian and, Min and well, certainly Life of Brian is more narratively solid in the sense that it's it clearly knows what it wants to be. Um, I sort of sort of quite enjoyed Life of Brian, um, possibly because everyone else was getting so upset about it. <laughs> um, so it's just sort of probably uh, liking it, despite. Um, again, it's, it's an okay film. Right, okay. Uh, um, I mean, none of the Monty Python ones really worked for me, I have to say. Not yeah. even enough for something completely different? I mean, would you have seen that? Um, I, I don't suppose you would have felt any need to, having seen it. No, I think series. the... I did see the film, and, yeah, it was... It was like the TV series, just rather a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting, because we're coming at this almost from completely opposite angles. I mean, I, I think you've argued your case yeah. very, very well, and because what you're essentially saying is that Monty Python was inherently televisual, and then... Yeah, and the, sharp. Yeah, and in... Well, absolutely and sharp, but in, in the manner of so many TV series, when you put that on the big screen and try yeah. to string it out, it's obvious that they're trying to string it out. The thing I would say is that I actually think Python is inherently cinematic. I mean, not just be, partially because you've got in the group Terry Gilliam, who has gone on to become one of the most cinematic filmmakers ever, frankly. Yeah. But also, I think that the structure of Python, because it wasn't... I mean, the, the comment that they made when they were doing all the documentaries about it for the 30th anniversary, when they did Python, they wanted to get away from the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore convention of having sort of beginning sketch, middle, and then a punchline. So you had little bits that had a yeah. distinct ending. So the way that I look at it is that because... Because Python was structured more as a stream of consciousness, you know, you'd sort of waft in from one thing into another yeah. and then it would sort of... Ch you'd basically change as soon as they got bored or realised that something wasn't funny anymore. It... there was sort of... there was scope to actually... And I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you've got something which is that freeform in structure, there is much more scope to actually turn it into a film, whereas with something like Rising Damp, when you've got very self-contained episodes yeah. with clear endings, Unless you just regurgitate stuff and have five endings, none of yeah. which work, then you've got no chance. No, of I, I understand the scope. I just don't think they pulled it off. But anyway, you disagree, and so does Andrew Charlton. So he's what on is, your side. What has he written in? Is oh, you'll have to do it. <laughs> this is yeah, Andrew Charlton, who broadcasts here on Sundays. He just texted in to say. Nee. <laughs> he <laughs> doesn't is, agree with me. Thank you very much. Well, like I said, look, I respect Put your you. messages on Facebook if you want to uh, respond to this debate. <laughs> yes. And um, I shall shut up. No, no, I, no. Then Richard, like I say, I respect your opinion, but I'm, I'm just going to argue the case for people who actually like the film. Um, so, like I say, it's from, purely from a structural point of view, there, it is much more cinematic than in many other TV adaptations, regardless of whether or not it holds together. You have to say that it does actually look like a proper film. Um, the second hurdle it has to get over is that, you know, 
is the thing that you were talking about about becoming baggy or having sort of little pockets of laughs with lots yeah. of you know what, what's known in the industry as shoe leather in between and james cameron is the master of shoe leather because if there if there's a scene where someone has to walk through a door and get some food if roger corman had done it it would have been walk through a door cut to eating food whereas james yeah. cameron films them walking through the door sitting down having a glass of water pouring the food eating the food and it's like yes get on with it james please we don't need to see this so i think that it does manage this um by two means, one of which is intentional, one other not so. Um, the first thing is that, on the one hand, Holy Grail was very, very tightly scripted from the beginning. They were working on it as early as the end of the third series, where John Cleese was threatening to leave, because, of course, he's not in the fourth series of the TV show. Yeah. And they, they basically had... They wrote the script under the same rules as the TV series. Basically, if it's not funny, then it goes out. And at one point, they had a, a script that was set half in medieval times, half in modern time. And they were, they'd were they sort of rolled about it over for about a month and then basically realised that the modern stuff wasn't funny. So they basically threw away half their script and started again. I mean, that takes confidence. And you wouldn't Indeed. get that in many yeah. comedy films. Of that. I mean, if, even if you look at something like Animal House, in which there are little bits and pieces in that which clearly are... No, not don't work, but are clearly ramshackle. You don't, you never get the sense of Landis saying, actually, no, that bit doesn't work, but I'm going to leave it in anyway. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. On the other hand, because they had so little money to the point at which, no, everyone was working for a, for a share of possible profits and they couldn't afford real which horses. Which they have probably done reasonably well out of. Yes, well, <laughs> Eric Idle more than most because he has flogged the dead coconuts quite a lot, um, to use a strange metaphor. So basically, because you've got, in, in the way of so many low-budget films, because you've got so much money to spend on celluloid, you can't afford to basically mess around and say, actually, can we do three more takes of that? And no, yeah. let's improvise for 20 minutes and see what comes out. So there's a natural efficiency in the way it was produced, even if that doesn't entirely transmit for some people into the final cut of the film. The result of this careful preparation and even more careful execution is a film which is not only efficient, but from my point of view, incessantly funny. I mean... Aside from Airplane, which has got one of the biggest gags to time ratio of any film, I can't think of another film which has that amount of jokes running through it. And again, I'm trying to sort of do this while seeing your point of view, because I don't want this slot to be a case of me just lecturing you. No. <laughs> he grins knowingly in the corner. Um, but yeah, it's, it's packed full of jokes. I mean, every conversation builds as a routine to its hilarious climax, and barely a line goes by without something quotable happening, whether it's, you know, um, the lines about the, whether it's the coconuts or the French knights, you know, making castanets out of a certain body part. Lots of things you can't mention because it is a 15 and so forth. But it is that perfect balance of the verbal and the visual, the highbrow and the lowbrow. So, Regardless of what your prior conception of Python is, there is something for everyone. Um, there's not enough time for me to praise or point out all the great sequences unless we do a scene-by-scene -scene commentary of the film, but we haven't got 90 minutes. Um, so, basically, you know, you, although the film as a whole is a spoof of the Arthurian legends, and to some extent the films of Cecil B. DeMille because you've got God coming out of the clouds telling mankind what to do. Because you know all those Cecil B. DeMille films like The Ten Commandments, where basically horrible carnage happens for yeah. two hours, and then God comes in at the end and says, you're all very bad and naughty. And that's the way that Cecil B. DeMille could get away with it, but of course that's not acceptable yeah. Um, but very little, but unlike something like Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein, which are straight down the middle spoofs of their particular thing, whether it's westerns or horror movies, very little of the humour actually comes from spoofing Arthur. Yeah. Um, so you've got things like Surreal Absurdity, which is, you know, the knights who say knee ordering Arthur to cut down a tree with a herring, which just, I mean, you can't say it without slightly sort of giggling on the inside. Um, the repetition, things like The Bridge of Death and Swamp Castle, you know, just playing on a repetition being a form of comedy. The existential role 
reversal, you know, Dennis the Peasant, played by Michael Palin, who has a conversation with the king about anarcho-syndicalism, uh, which is a, a bit like the, um, the communist, um, panel show gag sketch where they get all the you no know, Lenin and Mao Zedong yeah. and so forth to answer questions about the FA Cup which is quite funny and then you've got sort of the running gag so the swallows carrying coconuts the cat being beaten against the wall and the constant appearance of rabbits um the question among Python and film fans is whether or not this is better than Life of Brian and Cleese has taken a very strong line on this saying that he's he makes the sardonic observation that Americans like Holy Grail, whereas Britons tend to prefer Life of Brian, and because he views all Americans as secretly a bit dim, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that he's lived there for the last 10, 20 yeah. years. Um, and he does have something of a point in the sense that Life of Brian is clearly more mature and more professional, at least from a technical point of view, and is more substantial in the sense that whereas Holy Grail does sort of go from one joke to the next, it does have a plot to it, but it does sort of go from one joke to the next. Life of Brian has this sort of big, meaty idea from which all the jokes radiate out. But, you know, I think that Life of Brian does have its problems. And ironically, one of the things about Life of Brian is that the substance is so big that it ultimately ends up focusing on what's controversial rather than just yeah. what's funny. So all the little bits of whimsy in Life of Brian, like the, the brief UFO sequence where Brian gets captured by Terry Gilliam's aliens, they just pass by like non-sequiturs. Yeah. And you think, well, what was that? Was that meant to be funny? Um, bring it back. I want to see that again. So... In the Holy Grail, you've got a story and everything is efficiently told, but it's a case of the jokes triumphing over the story yeah. and speaking for themselves. In terms of the performances, every member of the Python team is at the top of their game. I mean, bear in mind, of course, Graham Chapman was still a rampant alcoholic by the time he was doing this, yeah. to the extent that he couldn't really remember any of his lines. And there's a wonderful uh, moment in... Uh, in a, the, the making of documentary, which you can get on the two-disc special edition DVD, where he's being interviewed by a BBC reporter about what the plot of the film is, and he says, well, it's about this hunt for the grail, which is like a strange sort of chickeny thing, and they go off and find it. So do you find it? No. The whole film is one big anticlimax. Start with a big anticlimax straight away, and then the whole film goes downhill from there. And he's clearly been on the source a little bit. Um, you've got Terry Gilliam's animations, which are, you know, beautifully mad as ever, yeah. particularly things like the Black Beast of Arg with all the eyes, which is, just appeals to me no end. And, uh, you know, it does help. Uh, those animations, at the very least, do help to disguise the fact that they had no money and sort of to move things on a little bit. And each of the six gets one scene in which they excel, although I think that Cleese is particularly brilliant as both the Black Knight, who loses all his limbs and says, no, it's just a flesh wound or just but a scratch, <laughs> lines which are just fantastic. Or the one-man assault on Swamp Castle, where basically you have the, the bit of film of him running to, towards the castle, looped over five or six times, yeah. and then he basically, it turns into a Sam Peckinpah film, because he goes in and slaughters all of them single-handed. I mean, it sounds like I'm, you know, have a very warped mind speaking about it like that. But as we'll come on to it, the... The interesting thing about Monty Python is its influence as a proper horror comedy, because there are big moments in that which are Peckinpah-esque in the balletic nature of the violence. I mean, like all the best low-budget films, you will be so swept along by what's going on that you all the sort of things about continuity errors and body doubles and the fact that it is the six, the same six people playing all the different parts, it's not that you completely ignore it, but you almost want to ignore it. And the influence of Holy Grail, for me, remains writ large in comedy and filmmaking. I mean, to some extent, this is unsurprising because you've got Terry Gilliam's things like Jabberwocky and Time Bandits, his first two post-Python films, and both of them have got Holy Grail lurking in the background. I mean, they're both... When Jabberwocky was released, Terry Gilliam got very upset because they said from the creators of Monty Python and the Holy Grail comes, whereas he was trying to make it as a conscious departure. But if you've seen Jabberwocky, which is you know, based on the Lewis Carroll poem, 
it's it's kind of holy grail but a little bit more fairy tale-ish and you know it still works very well but there is that back it and time bandits to a certain extent as well um you've also got you no know, because monty python was instrumental in that foundation of handmade films which was set up to um distribute life of brian the aesthetic of you no know, where the aesthetics of holy grail and life of brian cross over that sort of low-budget, creaky, but for its own sake and actually mm. quite nice, that has influenced the whole of Handmaid. And certainly if you look at something yeah. like The Longer Friday, which, you know, was filmed... I think we, when we discussed it, it was filmed on something like 5 million in 1979, yeah. and it, it does look sort of like everything's hemmed in, everything's very, you know, has to be done on one take, although it's still a great film. The most curious legacy, however, like I said, is in the realm of Holy Grail as a horror comedy. Um, you remember in the TV series where they had the Salad Day sketch, where they basically took the rip out of Sam Peckinpah, where they, they stage him doing um, salad days, which is, um, you know, a sort of uh, people in straw boaters hanging around uh, having played tennis on oh, the yeah, piano. Yeah. And then someone throws a tennis ball at Michael Palin's head and he gets this massive gatching yeah. head wound and then ev and John Cleese loses his fingers on the piano yeah. and so forth. But that's an example of, you know, Python understanding how a horror comedy works because there are lots of people wrote in to say that oh that's disgusting that's putrid that's awful but it is actually mercilessly funny and in this film you you basically have them saying okay well we did it to a little to a small extent on that film how can we sort of take it on now, how much corn syrup have we got to play with effectively how much fake yeah. blood can we have so you've got the black knight who has both his arms and both his legs chopped off and no says no we'll call it a draw and come back <laughs> up come back i'll bite your legs off um swamp castle in which you know you do get you no know, john cleese going around and you know, slashing at people and even fighting the wall for one small section of that sequence the killer rabbit which is still you know just brilliant that moment when the the, the tim the enchanter kind of leers over it's there but behind the rabbit, as the rabbit, in a strange Billy Connolly impression. And, no, you know, all of those sequences, and the Bridge of Death as well to some extent, they are simultaneously gross-out horrific in the sense that you go, Ugh, but also laugh-out-loud funny. And when it was first broadcast on CBS in 1977, when the first American broadcast yeah. of the film, a lot of those scenes were taken out because then, I don't think it was because it was pre-Watership, but because they were just they just didn't like those scenes and when the pythons threatened to sue them saying how dare you cut our film without our permission you know we got past it a i think it would have been a double a certificate back in 1975 because yeah. it was sort of 14 and over yeah, it sounds about right yeah. yeah um so they basically said no if you if, if you don't put them back in we will sue cbs said well basically i'll give it to a different network and they can show it uncut and since then pbs have owned the rights in america to all the monty python films on the basis that they have agreed to not cut a single second I mean, certainly in terms of the horror comedy legacy, I mean, if you look at things like Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead or Peter Jackson's Brain Dead from the early 90s, there are clear things in there which reference Holy Grail in the sense of, particularly in you know, The Evil Dead, when you have got sort of strange zombies running around all the time and Bruce Campbell fighting off. I mean, it is basically, you can almost argue the whole of Evil Dead is them taking the Lancelot sequence and flipping yeah. it in reverse so that Lancelot's the one being attacked. <laughs> For me, to sum up then, it is the film that I turn to whenever I lose faith in the power or lifespan of comedy. And on the basis of one of this week's new releases, I'm going to have to see it again. Um, I think it's brilliantly written, it's brilliantly acted, I think it you know, contains moments of histor more hysterical laughter than any other film. And it's, you know, for all the subsequent efforts of Python, both as a troupe and individually, and I'm a big fan of Terry Gilliam's work as a filmmaker, I think that this is still their finest achievement against which all their other work should be measured. I'm sorry that it didn't work for you, but for everyone else, it's a masterpiece. Let's have some ABBA. 
This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Cameron, Dancing Queen. You're not here next week. No, I'm going to be in London uh, seeing a, a friend's play at the Unicorn Theatre near London Bridge. That's good. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, so we I will bet. be back in two weeks' time when we will be doing American Psycho. But I'll be here next Saturday, so don't miss it. Oh, absolutely not. Yes. yes. I may be tuning down before I go on the train. We may have a bit of country music. You never know instead of instead of the movies. Fair enough. So, we'll be back in two weeks' time, but before that, we're going to have a look at this week's uh, new releases. Mm -hmm. Shall we get the turkey out of the way first? Yes, let's. One for the money. Yeah, new so-called comedy from uh, Julianne Robertson, who previously directed the last song, which was based on a book by Nicholas Sparks and uh, starred Miley Cyrus. So this is the one that's going to have you racing back to see Monty Python again, isn't it? Yes, it it is. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. No, Miley Cyrus or a Stephen Fry famous dude referred to her smiley virus. I don't think she's that bad. So the story is that Catherine Heigl, very, very bad start. Um, she's a Jersey girl called Stephanie Plum who um, has her car repossessed by debt collectors. And she says, no, I've had my ta- car taken away. I need the money so I can get it back. So she decides to become a recovery agent for a bail bond company uh, so she can earn the cash. Uh, while being a, no, a bail bond agent or a bounty hunter, as it's colloquially yeah. known, she is assigned to track down former cop and murder suspect Joe Morelli, whom it turns out she had a thing for in high school and they've sort of dated when they were 15 16. Exactly. I mean, if you're still with me after that plot, then here's what you need to know. First off, Catherine Heigl is a dreadful actress. I mean, she, she has picked a lot of very bad projects. I mean, things like The Ugly Truth, um, just which isn't funny. She's got no comic timing. She's got no facial expressions other than vague awe and no screen presence. Secondly, the direction is wretched. I mean, no, it's colours are oversaturated. They have no confidence in the material at all. I mean, if you've seen the trailers, it's, you know, people exchanging handcuffs and so forth just doesn't work. The third thing is, I mean, do you remember the film Midnight Run from the late 80s with Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro? Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, which is a very good comedy in which Robert De Niro plays a bounty hunter who's got to get Charles Grodin from one side of America to the other. But every time he tries to get him on a plane or a train or drive him in a car, he makes an excuse saying that he's afraid of flying and so forth, and then they end up walking across America to his trial and end up becoming friends. Now, that's a very good comedy and one of Robert De Niro's better comedy performances. So while you have Midnight Run, then you have The Bounty Hunter, the Gerald Butler film from a couple of years ago, which basically took all the good things about Midnight Run and made them stupid and unfunny. And then this is like a rip-off of the bounty hunter i mean at least with you no know, with the bounty hunter you had gerald butler who even though he was doing the same performance that he does in 300 is vaguely charismatic whereas here you've got Catherine heigl just wandering around with you no know, with dyed hair handcuffs and a pepper spray saying oh i'm a bounty hunter i'm playing and it's just like no you're not you're Catherine heigl you're wasting all of our time just shut up and go away other than that you quite liked it yes <laughs> <laughs> well, he said to get the turkey out of the way. So Indeed. Rant yes. over. Oh. Denzel Washington's next with uh, Safe House. Yeah, psychological thriller, the debut film by Daniel Espinosa. Um, story is Denzel Washington plays a CIA renegade who has been on the run for decades and is finally recaptured. While he's being held uh, in a safe house in South Africa, South Africa, uh, his house is, I won't do that again, his house is attacked and he has to escape with a rookie agent played by Ronald, Ryan Reynolds and they, they on the run together. Ryan Reynolds, who was recently in The Change Up and uh, The Green Lantern, which completely flopped. Um, another little reference point for you to ask. Um, do you remember Assault on Precinct 13, the John Carpenter film from 76? No. Okay. It was recently remade, but basically it was John Carpenter 
I think it was between Dark Star and Halloween, so we're talking mid-70s, and it was essentially his version of Rio Bravo, the Western, where you have, no, a, a rookie cop is assigned to a police station in a precinct of, of, of LA, I think, that's about to be closed down. Yeah. The police station, which has got a couple of criminals in it, gets besieged by a different criminal gang as part of vengeance, and basically the police and criminals have to work together and the weapons keep changing hands and it's a psychological thriller. And Assault on Precinct 13 is not great, but there are interesting things in it. And the film was remade in 2005 with Lawrence Fishburne and Ethan Hawke, and the remake was actually very good. Um, there are two big problems with this film. First off is the performances. I mean, Denzel Washington is great in pretty much anything. I mean, even yeah. if you put him in something like Malcolm X, where, I mean, if you think Holy Grail is an hour too long, Malcolm X is about three hours too long. <laughs> yeah. And no, that's, no, but you put Denzel Washington in and you think, you know, for all the horribly stupid misjudged things that are wrong with this film, Spike Lee, at least you had the guts to cast the right yeah. man as Malcolm X. So on the one hand you've got him, but then Ryan Reynolds, who, like I say, has made a lot of bad films, but he just looks completely out of his depth. Um, so, you know, you have this, you know, this relationship between the two characters in which you always believe who Denzel Washington is, but then Ryan Reynolds looked like he sort of wandered in from a high yeah. school play and just not like it's his first film. And no, he's still clearly learning his craft, so I don't want to hit him too badly, but it's just, it just doesn't work. The other bigger problem, in a way, is the tone of the film, because it turns, it starts out wanting to be all serious, you know, having Denzel Washington as this quasi-Hannibal Lecter character who's going to get inside people's yeah. heads and be mysterious and say, you know, no one is safe, I'm already inside your head. If you've seen the trailer, that speech is already in there. So, but after that, it keeps cutting to sort of ever more stupid action sequences. So it'll, it'll effectively amount to this of people talking in rooms and then lots of explosions, lots of explosions, and then a tiny bit more talking in rooms and then lots of explosions and so on. And after a while, that becomes rather tiresome. I mean, in a way, and this is, no, a very underhand compliment, but it reminded me to some extent of John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars, where you do have basically John Carpenter taking all the intelligent stuff that was in Assault on Precinct 13 and making it as silly as he possibly could. It is at very best an okay, slightly derivative B-movie, but Washington deserves better. Right, two of my uh, favourite acting persons next, Sigourney Weaver and Woody Harrelson. And this one is called Rampot. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're a fan of Woody Harrelson because we can agree on that. <laughs> What's your favourite Woody Harrelson performance? Oh, no, I've got the list of films here. So okay, you chat I'll to come to you and you come back to me with an answer. Okay, so it's the new film by Oren Moverman, who previously directed The Messenger, which got nominated for an Oscar in 2010, or a couple of Oscars, but only came out in the UK last year. Co written by James Elroy, who wrote LA Confidential. So. Good start. Um, you have Woody Harrelson in his second collaboration with Moverman, because he was also in, the, in um, the Messenger, set in late 90s LA in the Rampart District. It's based apparently on a true story. And you have an obnoxious cop played by Harrelson who is uh, a former Vietnam veteran, and he goes around basically bending the law uh, to get the results while entertaining the affections of various women, including Cynthia Nixon, who's in the Sex and the City series, and Anne Hesch, whom we don't see enough of. Um, his superiors, uh, one of whom is played by Sigourney Weaver, basically you know, are desperate for him to retire because he's such a firebrand. He gets caught on tape beating one of the suspects in a cell and after that his life spirals out of control and you know, he, he basically goes over the edge. 
We are in fairly worn territory. I mean, the idea of you know, a cop going over the the edge, you know, being just on the right side of the law but very aggressive and repulsive, yeah. is a very 70s idea. I mean, you can link it into the Dirty Harry series of Clint Eastwood, which, you know, Southern Impact is still the best of those. The French connection to some extent, and to, because it's about you know, a ruthless cop who is dislikable, but the whole thing about it is that it's morally ambiguous, and of course the French connection's got one of the great endings in 70s cinema, which yeah. was completely spoiled by the fact that they made a sequel in which he gets Lashani and that's the whole thing about it. And in the same way, I suppose that, no, L.A. Confidential was trying to be Chinatown for the 1990s. This film is still very much about the murky underbelly of American cities. I mean, it's very, very difficult to do anything up to the standard of Chinatown because that's yeah. Polanski's best film. Um, I think it is worth seeing mainly for the fact that Woody Harrelson is on fire. I think, I mean, I think he's very good in No Country for All Men. I think this is his best performance since The People vs. Larry Flint. Right. And I think that The People vs. Larry Flint is, you know, it's very difficult to top his performance in that. So I think it's, it's an actor's piece as much as anything. But, no, seeing Harrelson back on that kind of form is worth your money yeah. alone. I think you're looking at his films, probably Welcome to Sarajevo is the best yes, one I remember. Yes, that is a very yeah. good performance. Yes, it's a very good film indeed. And didn't he used to be in Cheers at one stage? Yeah, he was, um, didn't he take over the bartending role yeah. from Ted Danson? I think he did, yes. Yeah. yes. Amazing how people start out. Exactly, and Ted Danson, of course, has, has done quite well for himself in recent years, as you know, and Ted Danson turning up in a lot of things. Yes, And right. still, the definitive Gulliver's Travels. Right, Castlis to die for now, the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Has it lived up to the cast? Well, do you want to give some indication of the cast, or shall we, uh... Oh, they're all in it, aren't they? Uh, Dame Maggie Smith, I'm sure she's yeah, a dame, is, isn't is she? Dame. dame Judi Dench, uh, Bill Nighy, Celia Imrie, Tom Wilkinson, uh, Dev Patel. Mm-hmm. It is impressive, yes. castless. So we're talking about uh, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which is the new film by John Madden, who made Shakespeare in Love, most recently made The Debt, uh, which also had Tom Wilkinson in it. Based on the novel These Foolish Things by uh, Deborah McGuck, which itself, I think, takes its title. Isn't there a Cole Porter song called These Foolish Things? I think which there is, Brian yes. Ferry covered in the yeah. 70s. Um, so the story is, it's a group of retirement-age Brits, played by all those names you mentioned, except Dev Patel, who's not quite there yet. Um, <laughs> Basically, they decide for various reasons to up sticks and retire to ramp to uh, to India, and to this hotel of the title, which they're told in the classic way of so many British going on holiday films. They're told that it's you know a fantastic swanky hotel, and they get there and it's a pile of ruins. Dev Patel is the the chirpy but completely incompetent manager who's trying to yeah. run it, and there's sort of chickens going through all the rooms and you know, buildings falling down and so forth. And they all go on various emotional journeys while trying to basically rebuild the hotel and uh, yeah. enjoy their retirement. On the surface, it does, I and mean, if you've seen the trailer, it does look like one of those twee, smug, slightly slight British comedies which are, you know, made for the export market, sort of overly whimsical, but essentially a bit of a pudding. Actually, there is a little more to it. I mean, first off, John Madden's a very competent director. I mean, he's not a great filmmaker yeah. by any means, but you know, Shakespeare in Love is the definition of a decent film, and the debt was perfectly fine. And, you know, in the same way that Ladies in Lavender, the Charles Dance film, wasn't just... Maggie Smith and Judy Dench in Lavender wandering around. There was actually something you no know, more. I like that film. I really like yes. it. Yes, yes. No, and particularly Na Natasha McElhone, who is still a very underrated actress. So I think it's obviously going to appeal to an older audience than either of us, in the sense yeah. that it will be sort of the, it's, it's what's known as the saga crowd, rather derogatively. But I think that in the same way, to draw a comparison with the film that you like, in the same way that Saving Grace pleasantly surprised me, I think if you go in with low expectations, they will be exceeded. Yeah, good. 
uh, worth going to see. Red yeah. Dog is next. Yeah, it's an Australian film, apparently based on a true story, uh, directed by Kim, by Criv Stenders, if I'm pronouncing it right, and featuring a script co-written by Louis de Bernier, who of course wrote Captain Credit's Mandolin. Yeah. So, pretty good territory. Um, story revolves around a red dog, a various breed, who roams the outback searching for his uh, lost master. So, we're in Australia, obviously, and ends up coming across an outback community which is being torn apart by various kinds of strife and uniting it somehow by the fact that he's there. I mean, we're clearly in Homeward Bound territory, and there are lots of people my age who revere the Homeward Bound series as childhood gems. I have to say, I didn't quite get a handle on them when I was young. And it, you know, it's very predictable. It's the kind of thing that Lasse Halstrom would have made if he was Australian. Yeah. And that's not entirely a criticism, because, you no, know, we're both Lasse Halstrom fans. I mean, obviously, Chocolat we, we yes. both love. Yeah. But, but in a way, this is closer to his earlier works, like uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. Um, which, again, is, is perfectly decent. My advice is that, no, unless you desperately want something predictable don't go and see this but go and rent a film called Dean Spanley which is a very odd New Zealand film where basically Peter O'Toole plays a, no, a crotchety 70 year old man as only Peter O'Toole can do who is mourning the fact that his dog has been lost and he meets this guy called Dean Spanley played by Sam Neill who has a dinner party with him, drinks this very rare, expensive Hungarian wine, and basically reveals that in a past life he was a dog and starts recanting all yeah. these memories. It's very, very odd, but it's a wonderful family film. And if you can track it down, it's brilliant. So, Red Dog, it's okay, but Dean Spanley is a lot better. And some Jack Nicholson to finish with, and a long, long title, Corman's World, Exploits of a Hollywood Rebel. Whatever happens to films with short titles <laughs> well we've had a couple recently yes. haven't we I mean, red yes. dogs short round part i guess yes yes. maximum of two syllables that's yes. that's your corman-esque rule yes. you know corman said no the famous quote about roger corman was no film should be longer than 90 minutes unless it's got special papal dispensation yes. uh, and in this case no so it's a documentary about the famous producer and director roger corman who as a director is best known for things like the original version of Little Shop of Horrors, which he famously shot in a day and a half, yeah. or uh, the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations from the early 50s, of which The Pit and the Pendulum is still very, very scary. Um, but he's more famous as a producer, particularly for giving a lot of the great directors of the new Hollywood movement their first break, because he was the one who taught Francis Ford Coppola how to make films and taught James Cameron how to make films. But it's interesting that, I've, you know, whereas Francis Ford Coppola took all his advice on board and went on to make The Godfather and so yeah. forth, James Cameron basically hated Coleman and, and as soon as he got the chance <laughs> yeah. he, w he, he went on to make films that were two and a half hours long and massively baggy and so forth and that's how that's how he's gone since then I mean yeah. I, I know that in particular you're not a fan of the Terminator series no yeah but no, that's, that's for another day. Um, so it's directed by Alex Stapleton, and it basically tries to answer the central question of basically, you've got a retiring son of a civil engineer, and yet he's the guy who comes through to shape both modern Hollywood and is as influential as Nick Cassavetes in the shaping of independent filmmaking in America. It was originally made for TV, and when I was watching the trailer, I was reminded a little bit of a documentary called Fire in Babylon, which is about the West Indies cricket team of the 70s and 80s, and that very much felt like it, yeah. was, it was an extended TV. TV documentary more than anything else. So I think if you're a fan of Roger Corman's, you won't find anything here that you don't already know or can't garner from watching his films. I mean, in particular, the first Little Shop of Horrors, not the 80s version, is 
it's very creepy in its yeah. own way. The feed me, feed me sequence is still quite... Ugh. So, if you're a casual viewer, it is a pretty decent introduction, but you needn't go and see it in cinemas, because it is, in the end, rather televisual. So, recommendations, then? Well, film of the week is Rampart. I think that the best exotic Marigold Hotel will do perfectly fine, but if you're a young, cynical man like me, you might find it a little bit too twee. And <laughs> of the stuff in the top ten, uh, still take your pick between the Muppets and the Woman in Black. Great! Well, it's been a fun week. Yes, yes. it has. We say some <laughs> <laughs> Listen to it all again on the podcast. And you're back uh, this Thursday? Yeah, I'm here from one till three, and uh, we will be back as the movie hour in uh, two weeks' time to talk yep. about American Psycho. But I'll be back with more sports news next Saturday between eight and ten. Looking forward to it. And uh, coming up this afternoon, we've got Jerry G between uh, 12 and five. Laura Wilkinson tonight between six and eight. So lots to look forward to, but now we have the latest news from London. It's coming up to 11 o'clock. Mm. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.